is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of community through media, narrative, and critical consciousness. I'm Kateri Zuni. Tonight, we share a lecture from the UNM Africana Studies Cortez Williams Lecture Series, featuring Dr. Stephanie Evans. Dr. Evans is a professor and chair for the Department of African American Studies and Africana Women's Studies and History for Clark Atlanta University. Dr. Evans researches black women's intellectual history, focusing on memoirs and mental health. She is also curator of Black Women's Studies Booklist, a digital humanities web resource, and the editor of Black Women's Wellness Book Series from SUNY Press. In this lecture, Dr. Evans discusses Africana studies and institutional wellness. The Cortez Williams series is sponsored by the UNM Office of the Provost, Vision for Equity and Inclusion, Men of Color Initiative, and the Albuquerque chapter of The Links. Now, please enjoy this presentation from Dr. Stephanie Evans. Hello, good afternoon or morning into afternoon. How are you? Um, can you hear me okay? Excellent. It is a pleasure and an honor to be here. I'm so grateful for this invite. Thank you, Dr. Bucknell. Thank you so much. I'm just so grateful to be what is back home. And thank you, Beth. It takes a village to host a speaker. This is a homecoming for me because I lived in Albuquerque when I was three, from three to six, and then moved away, and then came here for a summer when I was 15, and moved back for a year when I was 18, and then came back when I first started college at the age of 25, and I served as an iTeach counselor, which was a summer program at the time here at University of New Mexico for six weeks, and it was my introduction into college. It's a privilege to be back here on this campus. It's a privilege to be back here. I'm just grateful to be back in this space. So I'm here to talk about historical wellness and how that plays out, how race, gender, and wellness plays out in individually, intellectually, and institutionally. I begin by talking about healing in terms of Tony Cade Bambara's book, The Salt Eaters, where Minnie Ransom, who is a community healer, is giving the protagonist, Velma Henry, the business, right? And during this healing session, she has this, when you piece together parts of the story, what becomes a very interesting monologue about healing and the will to heal. And she says, are you sure, sweetheart, that you want to be well? I like to caution folks, that's all. No sense in us wasting each other's time, sweetheart. A lot of weight when you're well. Folks come in here moaning and crying and carrying on and say they want to be well. Don't know what in heaven or hell they want. Just those with sure, sweetheart, and you're ready to be healed because wholeness is no trifling matter. A lot of weight when you're well. Are you sure, sweetheart? I'm just asking is all. 
take away the miseries and you take away some folks' reason for living, the conversation piece anyway. I can feel that you're not quite ready to dump the dish. Got to give it all up, the pain, the hurt, the anger, and make room for the lovely things to come through, to fill you full. Nature abhors a so-called vacuum, don't you know? I can wait. Release, sweetheart. Give it all up. Forgive everyone everything. Free them, free self. A grown woman won't mess around in the mud puddles too long before she releases. It's warmer inside. Release, sweetheart. Let it go. Let the healing powers flow. And I, I start with that understanding of wellness, because wellness as an individual, as an intellectual, or as an institution is a process. And it takes collective will in order to be well and to be healed in terms of practicing and practicing balance and practicing renewal, as Stephanie Mitchum describes healing. It's a practice. I come to this research at a very interesting time in that I'm getting ready to turn 50 in June. And it has me reflecting on what it means to be an elder and what it means to learn from those who have come before. And at the same time, we are commemorating the 50th anniversary of black studies in this country and women's studies in this country. There's a lot going on in 1968 to have the, all these birthdays in 1969. And, and so I, I've started to look at black women's intellectual history as a guide for how we can all be well. To revisit history is to see it in new light and to come up with this concept of historical wellness is to fly in the face of a lot of the, the ways in which history is told, particularly the ways of black women's history. We have a history of struggle. We have a history of oppression, but we also have a history of resistance. So for example, we think we know history. How many people, like everyone's heard of Rosa Parks, right? How many people know that Rosa Parks did yoga? Yoga, yes. <laughs> Right, so Rosa Parks, in her niece's story, Our Auntie Rosa, the family of Rosa Parks remembers her life in 2015, they wrote this. Auntie Rosa had interests that not too many people knew about. Her receptiveness always left me pleasantly surprised. This was especially true when she decided to join us at yoga class. She really enjoyed it. Most people could never picture the mother of the civil rights movement doing upward facing dog or any of the other poses. But the older Auntie Rosa got, the more it seemed she evolved. Well into her senior years, she has only recently begun practicing yoga. Splendid silver hair gives her away as the oldest student in most classes she occasionally attends with family. But she doesn't care. She reached a point where she considers herself a student of life. Her level of growth isn't tied to her age. She likes it that way. Eventually, she learns the movements and the yogic principles well enough to practice alone in her home. She'll answer the door wearing yoga pants. That was my favorite part. 
this, uh, the, uh, the exercises help clear her mind. The stretches keep her body limber. In her space on the floor, she takes sanctuary, be it at a studio, under the voice of an instructor, or in the sunlight in her living room. Inner peace and clarity have always been important to her. Poses like lotus, warrior, and upward-facing dog weren't common where she came from. Now she knows them. She hasn't lived in India, but she respects its ancient traditions. She isn't a Buddhist, though she is definitely enlightened. She is my Auntie Rosa. Namaste. So Rosa Parks lived to be 92. And we have this very um, still picture of what it means to be an activist in history. But it, when, in fact, we, we look at history through a different lens, through the lens of wellness, we see what's been happening, you know, the value of taking seriously the need to study race and gender in a formal way. And then we can see prior history um, in a very different light. So we have these two pictures here, Blue Monday and My Cup Runneth Over, both by Annie Lee, one of my favorite artists. The first picture is a self-portrait of her when she worked in the railroads. And she was getting up at 5.30 in the morning. And that was her, you know, Blue Monday. It's a very popular picture. The second is My Cup Runneth Over. They're both black women. They're both in nightgowns. And so wellness is about moving from the first to the second in how we understand our self-portrait. So as institutions, we normalize stress. We make stress feel normal. OK, grad students in the house, you've got to feel me on this, right? How are you doing? Oh my gosh, I'm doing this in my literature review, and the classes, and the undergrad. If you're taking all these classes and things like that. And as faculty, what are you working on? Well, I just published an article. Great, what are you working on now? It is this constant need to do more and to be more. And that makes stress seem normal. So we, as institutions, normalize stress. But the thing is this, stress kills people. Okay, Chronic stress kills people. There's a wonderful book called Why Zebras Don't Have Ulcers, right? Because stress is good. If you have to run from something, you know, it's good to have stress in that moment. But we normalize stress and make it chronic in the academy. And chronic stress kills people. The so what is black women elders have self-care traditions that can give us a guide to wellness. And the now what is how we learn, practice, and teach wellness and model wellness. Because this institution is probably crazy. I mean, I'm not projecting. I'm just saying I, if this is the one institution that I've been to that's not crazy, that's wonderful to know. The community, the nation, you know, everyone is um, addicted to stress. But one of, the most, one of the most effective ways you can impact that is to model it. So this is how stress impacts people. Every physical system, right? There was a black women's study done, a longitudinal study at Boston College. That's 69,000 women. And they monitored what makes black women well how do these factors impact wellness and illness? So generally speaking, the nervous system, stress impacts the nervous system, anxiety, headaches, skin rashes like psoriasis and eczema, and a weakened immune system, the integumentary 
system, the skin. You know, I've had colleagues who were so stressed at their jobs that their hair started falling out. Your teeth, everything. Circulatory, increased risk of heart attack, high blood pressure, high blood sugar. As we say in Atlanta, we got the sugar. What you got? Well, you know, I got the sugar. The digestive, heartburn, ulcers, irritable bowel syndrome, respiratory, asthma, shortness of breath, reproductive, your sex drive, very important, fibroids and menstrual disruption, childbirth. And here's what's interesting that, that new science is finding out about the gene development. The history of black people impacts us at a genetic level, right? And then that impacts what we pass down to our children and the musculoskeletal, on your shoulders, your back, your tension, all of these things have an impact. And they have an impact that is measurable, you know, with variables of race, SES, or socioeconomic status, and abuse. Those who are survivors of sexual violence have an increased probability of asthma, hypertension, obesity, fibroids, all of these things are connected. So it's the, the physical being and the historical aspect of it, but it's also the experiential aspect of it. And this is very personal for me because I am a survivor of several different types of violence. There's the personal violence, sociocultural violence, right? Things like the Confederate flag, these, these microaggressions or people stealing your hairstyles, just doing stuff that you've been doing forever and getting credit for it, right? Um, and the institutional violence, right? So there's all these different types of violence that people experience, but um, I am here by God's grace, right? I should have been a statistic. There were so many things that in my life could have taken me out. When I started college, it's so strange being back here. When I started college in 1994, uh, I, I developed a bleeding ulcer. Like I was so stressed out that I was bleeding internally. And it was because I didn't think I was going to make it. I had finally gotten, I was 25, I had finally gotten to college. And I thought, oh, I, I just, I don't know how to do this. Everybody is smarter than I am. I just don't know if I'm going to make it. It was at St. John's, which is a private school. I was driving down every weekend to wait tables at Laughs Comedy Club. And then I'd come back exhausted from the weekend, trying to scramble to study. It was definitely stressful. But all of those things were exacerbated by my low self-esteem. And so a little quick narrative. I was born in Washington, D.C., came here when I was three. We went to California, lived in Germany for three years, and then Illinois, then to Tucson. I'd moved around so much that books became my best friend because I was always the new girl in school. I developed as a reader. So the, the great part of that was that I had this unbelievable exposure to the world. You know, I'd eaten bratwurst and schnitzel and German chocolate cake and German chocolate pancakes, and uh, I love food. But I'd had this exposure. So even when we moved back to Tucson, my parents got divorced, and the, the home was just not safe. I moved out at 16. But I'd still had these experiences where I knew the world was bigger than my block. I knew the world was bigger than my experiences. And so um, this first picture here is my passport picture. And then this next picture here is my last picture at home, right before I moved out at 16. And by the time I, I had you know, been in these, both of these pictures, I had been assaulted three times. So I wrote a poem called 611, 16, 19, 21. 
Those were the times that I'd been attacked by different men, right? And so if three out of five African-American women are reporting abuse, that's reported, right? And it may just be some incident. It may not be an actual completed assault. But all of these things are cumulative, and all of these things are historical, right? And so I didn't develop a bleeding ulcer out of nowhere. I developed it out of this experience of not feeling safe and wanting to be well and wanting to be safe but not knowing how. So I started college at 25 and because I love books so much, I, I got addicted, right? And I read Anna Julia Cooper, who most people have heard of Du Bois. How many have heard of Anna Julia Cooper? All right, all right, a couple people, all right. So when I read the essay by Anna Julia Cooper on the education of women that she wrote in 1890, I knew I was home. I knew that I wanted to pursue being an educator. At that point, I thought I wanted to be a high school teacher. But once I got into college, I was like, yo, this is where all the books are. I'm going to stay here. So I went to graduate school, because obviously I'm a glutton for punishment. And my first year in graduate school, I was going to drop out. Because again, I thought everyone was smarter than I was. I didn't know anything. So I went home to DC to visit my grandmother. And she pulled out this letter that I had written to this letter. It's a letter, right? And you see this Yvette Evans down here. She pulled out that letter and she gave it. To, she, she said, baby, you a writer. When I moved here and I wrote her in DC, she says, you wrote me a letter. You didn't draw me a picture. You a writer. And I said, well, my grandmama said, I'm a writer. I belong here, right? So I would encourage you to mine your personal archives. Whenever you, you are feeling lost and, you, and, and baseless, right, go back to your childhood. You have messages that you sent to yourself, time travel messages that will clue you in. And my colleagues were fortunate enough to uh, go to National Council of Black Studies recently. And the Association of Black Studies, the two professional conferences for African-American studies, and Sonia Sanchez is there. And when I met Professor Sanchez, she gave us a chant. It'll get better. 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 It will get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. And that is something that, you know, I feel like that's what I was writing. It'll get better. It'll get better. It'll get better. It was something that, um, that as, a, as a message has helped me and has helped many of my students. In looking at the sources of historical wellness, there are a couple of things that, this is part of a, a book project that I'm working on. I took a, a hypnotherapy class in 1988 just because I wanted to know how the mind works. And since then, I'd been collecting wellness courses. I was an aerobics instructor. I got my yoga certification and took meditation classes, eight-week meditation classes. So if you have mindfulness-based stress reduction out here or any sort of meditation classes, to take seriously the learning of wellness is really is something that, if we're going to take learning seriously, will be very, very helpful. So the sources that I've collected over these past few years, two of the sources, the Index Us and the Health First, were products of this movement in the 1980s. Black studies started 50 years ago. Women's studies started 50 years ago. Black women's studies really ramped up in the 1980s 
which was this collection of, of scholar activists from both of these movements, one of which was Billy Avery, who started the Black Women's Health Project. And she developed what developed into the Center for Black Women's Wellness, which is an institute in Atlanta, and then in nationally, the Black Women's Health Imperative, which is an advocacy group specifically devoted to black women's wellness. So I know part of what African American studies does, and I know that it does this here, is community engagement, is not uh, taking this stance that we are academe and we know everything and we're going to go out and serve the community, but understanding that the community are actual partners in learning. The community knows things that we don't. The community can help us with research. So these two products are part of this community-based scholar activist consciousness raising group that Billy Avery started in the 1980s. And Health First, this wellness guide, and the Index Us report just came out in 2016. And it's an evaluation of the mining of that black women's health study that I mentioned earlier. There's also the blue zones that I'm looking at. This is a book about centenarians. Not just one or two in a community, but communities around the world of people who have lived to be 100. So there is a community in Italy, in Greece, in Japan, in Costa Rica, and Loma Linda, California, of all places. So these are communities around the world where people have lived to be over 100. And so these are called blue zones. As a researcher, one of my questions is, so there's no communities in Africa where there's a group of people that have lived to be 100? So as a researcher, African-American studies is valuable because it helps you critically analyze some of these. It's a beautiful study. It's powered by National Geographic, but you get to see absences in some of the research. Right? Africa is a continent, and it's not a country. It's a whole continent. On the whole continent, there's not a group of people who have lived to be 100. So you start to interrogate existing research, but you also produce your own. So Black Women's Mental Health, and if you look on the bookmarks, that's the orange book that just came out in 2017. I started looking at African-American women and translated intellectual history, because one of the questions that African-American studies does is ask, what does your research do? We have the theories. But how, what is the application? And, and we are absolutely adept. I saw, saw a picture of Du Bois in the you know, African American Studies program here. And Du Bois is you know, the, the grandfather of understanding that we do have theoretical value as intellectuals. But what does your research do is one of those questions that African American Studies asks. So as someone who studies black women's ideas, I was pushing myself to say, what does your research do? And that's how I came to look at mental health. Um, but I know, you know, I'm a historian, I don't know not, near nothing about mental health. So I approached my colleague, Kanika Bell, who is a, a psychology professor, but also a psychologist the, with an active practice. And she did a survey of 50 black women mental health professionals around the country. The first chapter of this black women's mental health book is called Sisters on Sisters. And it is black women mental health professionals, who some are psychologists, some are social workers, who write about the issues that African-American women have in particular, and some of their recommendations that include finding inspiration and understanding that inner peace is possible. 
uh, networking, asking for help, decluttering. You know, this Marie, the, the Japanese uh, Marie Kondo, every, some people just hate her. I personally love her because this, you know, we have these generational garages of stuff, right, that we've accumulated that we can't go through. I see some heads nodding. You got that, you know you got that grandmama <laughs> in the back that has, you know, all the stuff. And, and so that helping to declutter is part of our mental health. That doesn't mean throw everything out. That means really work through that process that's often a root of depression to go through these things. Because part of the reason why we, um, we hoard is because it's too painful to go through all those things. And forgive, there's an asterisk by forgive. Forgive when necessary is that there's that church finger where you go, mm, you forgive. <laughs> But there's, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, fool me once. That doesn't mean that I have to subject myself to your foolishness again. I forgive you, but stay, stay the hell up on over there. And so those, those are the, some of the outcomes of, of what it means to look at mental health through that lens. Welcome back to Generation Justice, where tonight we share a lecture from Dr. Stephanie Evans. Dr. Evans discussed Africana studies and institutional wellness here at UNM as part of the Cortez Williams lecture series presented by UNM Africana Studies. Now let's get back into Dr. Evans' discussion. And so the methodology that I used for this upcoming work is to look at the American Psychological Association said that there are stress management strategies. So if stress kills people, how do we manage stress? And they said that these are it. Listen to music, exercise or walk, pray, a meditation or yoga. And again, for the researchers in the room, this is so, this is an example of the importance of mixed methods research. That all of those different sources that I'd accessed before were important. But this was the only source that mentioned music as a wellness tool. So gathering sources from a lot of different source types is really important. And then you know, aggregating and disaggregating and all of these different types of things to get, your, to get your methodological model is really important. And so I'm looking at meditation, music, prayer, yoga, and exercise. And then my research question became, how did African-American women elders practice five stress management traditions? And to look at the data set that I used was an Africana Memoirs collective, right? So I, I said I love books. I obsessively collect books by foreign about black women. This is a database of 500 books by black women that are, that are uh, memoirs or autobiography from around the world. So you have black German women. You have aboriginal women in Australia. You've got women, uh, Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Uh, you know, all different types of women. Polly Murray, Asada Shakur, Condoleezza Rice, had to put her in there, <laughs> and Flo Kennedy, you know. And so what this also shows is that black women's thought, right, we are not a monolith. When you say black women, I'm doing research on black women. Well, which one, sweetie? Because there's, we don't all think alike. But this allowed me to identify eight black women who were centenarians who wrote their life stories. And so we have LMA Cheeks Johnson, Anna Julia Cooper, Ann Nixon, the Delaney sisters, Ida Keeling, and so forth. So from this, we have models of wellness. 
Anna Julia Cooper was born enslaved in Raleigh, North Carolina. She lived to be 105 and a half. What Kimberly Crenshaw calls intersectionality, Anna Julia Cooper wrote about in 1892 in a book called A Voice of the South by a black woman of the South. So we know about Du Bois's The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. In 1892, Anna Julia Cooper wrote, the first half of the book are four essays about womanhood. The second half of the book are essays about blackness. And her question was, how do I exist as a woman? And how do I exist as black? And how have the, you know, so what we are calling intersectionality is these identifiers and the relationship to power, because intersectionality is just not just a collection of, I mean, Kimberly Crenshaw has done, you know, a lion's share of work trying to correct people on her idea. That it's not just, oh, look, I have this identity and this identity and this identity, and that's intersectionality. Intersectionality is about how these identities relate to each other in relation to structures of power. Anna Julia Cooper wrote about this, but I spoke with, you know, I started to think about her as a centenarian. It's like she lived to be 105 and a half, died in her sleep, in her bed, in her house. Like, what was that about? So I reached out to her grandnephews. And when I said, so what, what do you think, you know, you were there, what was her secret? And he said, well, she wrote every day in her sunroom. So when she moved into her house on T Street, she gardened, she had a garden, she had some card parties. We don't think about those old women having them card parties. You know, that was part of her social network. And she built a sunroom and she did some of the, you know, the Italian tiling. So she did some of the house, the work on her, the house herself. But she built this sunroom. And every morning she would go in that sunroom to write. And that's meditation. She wrote academic articles. She wrote French, you know, she translated Charlemagne's French from Old French to Middle French, uh, the, the pilgrimage of Charlemagne. Taught five languages at the college level. I mean, she really was a thinker, but this was her meditation time to sit in the sunroom. Marian Anderson is a singer who many of us have heard of. She's an opera singer, right? She lived to be 96. So she said that when she learned a song, I mean, she was born in Philadelphia because of segregation was not accepted to music school. So she had to go abroad to develop her singing career. Many of us know about her story in 1939 in Easter Sunday where the Daughters of the American Revolution refused to allow her to sing and so Eleanor Roosevelt said, well, why don't we just hold our own little concert, right, on the Lincoln Memorial, where 75,000 people attended. And so Marian Anderson talks about the process of learning a song. When she learns a song, because she sang opera, many of the songs that she learned were in you know, different languages. But she said, first, I, I love to saturate myself in music. You know, that picture of saturating myself in the melody. And then I learned the poems and the words. So for Marian Anderson, wellness is uh, a saturation in song. Dovey Roundtree. So Dovey Roundtree um, just passed away in 2018 at 104. She was a graduate of Spelman College and went to Howard Law School. And she was a high, high-powered lawyer who opened her uh, own firm with a partner 
And we know about Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 that desegregated the schools. Well, W. Roundtree was on the legal team that desegregated transportation in 1955. So she was arguing in front of the Supreme Court, and she talks about her grandmother, who lived to be 103, and her grandmother's and her mother's experience coming up to her graduation having to ride the Jim Crow car. And so that, that court case to fight desegregation was very personal to her. But she was very interesting because she said the law was not enough. And here, historically, we, we can see what's going on contemporarily and how that played out in history. She was in the hospital for fibroids. And so while she was in the hospital, she had an epiphany. And she confessed to her minister. And she says, I have this feeling that the law is not enough. And so just to read her, her words, you know, and this is how we get when we work. Racing came as naturally to me as breathing. And in the early months of 1959, I had every reason to race. Julius, which was her law partner, was overworked. Our client loads seemed to double weekly. Our court calendar was booked with trials back to back. My church needed me. And so did dozens of others in the city who were calling upon me to speak. I ran out of habit, partly, but also out of fear of that sensation that would not let go of me, that dogged me everywhere I went. Amid the noise of my life, the buzz of the office and the intensity of trial work, the ringing of the phones and the voices of the people perpetually crowding around me for one kind of help or another, I thought to drown out whatever it was that wouldn't let go of me. And it turns out that what wouldn't let go of her was her call to ministry. So she was this high-powered lawyer doing everything, these great cases, and she's sitting in the hospital and she's like, I think I'm opposed to be a minister, right? This was in 1959. So she went back to Howard to go to, you know, for a theology degree. And she became one of the first ordained ministers in the AME church in 1961. So, you know, what's striking about that story is her partner, Julius, didn't stop running. He was going. He was, you know, on the cases. He passed away at 46. And so being able to listen to that small voice and realize how when, you know, are you sure, sweetheart, you want to be well? How do we drown out our own selves? Because prayer is not always about talking to God to say, God, please give me this, give me this, I would like this. God is not Santa Claus, right? It is about listening. And so for Debbie Roundtree, wellness was a silent prayer. The Delaney sisters, which, has anybody heard of the Delaney sisters, a couple of people? So the Delaney sisters, much like Rosa Parks, but much earlier than Rosa Parks, started doing yoga. They were sisters, and they joked, they joked, that part of the reason they lived to be 104 and 109 was because they never married. You know, and so, <laughs> but they were sisters in New York, and they lived, they started doing yoga at the age of 60. And Sadie, they were Sweet Sadie and Queen Bess. And I love, they had totally different temperaments. Sweet Sadie would listen and say, oh, yes, and absolutely, and do what the hell she wanted to do anyway. Queen Bess was not having it. She was like, no, not today. 
And so it was really interesting to see how two completely different temperaments, you know, so wellness is not always about this, you know, Zen place. You know, wellness can be cursing somebody out. You know, in the words of Brittany Cooper's eloquent rage, you know, rage can be healthy, but the last chapter in Brittany Cooper's book is called Joy, right? So these two sisters had two completely different temperaments, but they were each very uh, mindful about they were going to do what they wanted to do. So they started doing yoga because their mother at the age of 80 started to hunch over. So they said, you know, well, we started doing morning exercises Monday through Friday with mama because she started hunching over. And Sadie started, you know, doing the morning. They, she said that we didn't know it was yoga. We was just bending over and doing our, touching our toes, doing our exercise. Remember Jack Elaine? <laughs> if you laughed at that, I mean, you're showing your age. And so, you know, there was this, this thing that people did, right? And Bessie noticed that the older sister, Sadie, started looking better than she did. And she says, oh, no, we need to, I'm going to start doing yoga too. So, you know, for them, wellness was a daily stretch. And lastly, Miss Ida, Ida Keeling from New York, is a marathon runner. And she is 103, still with us at 103, was just on The View a few months ago doing push-ups. And so this is a really interesting story because Ida Keeling started running out of grief. That um, she started running at the age of 67. She's from New York, she has four children. Her, her husband died early. And um, both of her sons were Vietnam vets. So when they came back to New York from Vietnam, they were just doing what they do to survive. Both of them, in different instances, a few years apart, were killed. And so this is what Ida Keeling said. It was September 1982, and I was 67 years old. I didn't care whether I won the race or not. I didn't care whether I survived or not. The only reason I was in it was to satisfy my youngest daughter, Cheryl. She was worrying herself to death about me. She now tells people the smile had gone from her face. A light had gone off inside her. I watched for eight months after Charles's death, one of her sons. Her appetite wasn't the same. She was lost inside herself, and it bothered me. Mommy was always on my mind. Cheryl was right. I was lost. Somebody had tied my eldest son's hands behind his back then hung him. Nobody had been arrested for the murder. Somebody had beat my other son to death with a baseball bat in broad daylight, and no one would step forward to let the police know who did it. The witnesses were afraid. Telling would mean testifying. Testifying would mean danger to the witness's family. There is a saying now in poor communities that says, snitches get stitches. We know that. At least I did. My boys were dead, and no one was ever going to answer for it. The pain was just too much to bear. So in African-American studies, we are addressing intellectually these things. But so often, we are the embodiment of what is going on in our communities, and we have these experiences that we are living with. So you know, institutionalizing wellness means understanding that it's not just a detached research study, that objectivity is not the best type of research, right? This objective research. In fact, there's no such thing as objective research. Every researcher has bias, but we don't like to admit that anyway. And that these are things that are happening to us that we can learn from. So Miss Ida started running, and she said it helped clear her mind. And she felt better. And her, her sons had passed, 
And she had done various things to try to rectify that, but that was, nothing was going to change that fact. When she started running, she felt better, so she kept running. So then she talks about her health regimen and exercise and what that means. She says, for me, it's quite simple. I drink a lot of orange juice day to day. The routine follows a pattern that, that could help young people get healthier, too. I'm in bed at 9 and get up at 6. Before getting out of bed, I exercise because it makes me happy to be moving flat on my back. I move my arms and pull my knees clear to my chest. Then get up, lickety split, put on my slippers, and she goes forward. She says, a U.S. Army recruiting commercial from the 80s proudly boasted when it came to soldiers in the Army, quote, we do more before 9 a.m. than most people do all day. Clearly, the brass of the U.S. Army never met anyone like me. Um, staying in the right lane and staying healthy for me means not only exercising regularly, and she talks about her stuff, but this is my absolutely favorite part. She says, back in 1972, a doctor told me that a drop of Hennessy is good for poor circulation. <laughs> he said that if Hennessy is not available, then port wine will do. Hooray for that doctor. At dinner time, I might have cereal, wheat products with hard boiled eggs or vegetables and things. And so this is something that's reflected in the Blue Zones book in that one of the interviewees in the Blue Zones, you know, they say, well, what's your secret to living to be 100? And he said, I think it was someone from from Costa Rica. He said, I eat a piece of candy every day. Dude ain't got no teeth. But that was his, how do you live to be 100? I eat a piece of candy every day. Part of the problem is that we don't know moderation. So a thimble full of Hennessy is, you know, could be great every day if that's what makes you happy. You know, like my grandmama had her little stash of gin. But it's our inability to regulate those things and to understand that if we keep doing more and more and more, that's not going to fill us up. That's not going to make us happy. So to bring this to a close, I'll talk about intellectual wellness. I love reading, and I love reading about black women because they have validated me intellectually, and they have, I gave a presentation called Loving All the Voices Inside My Head. And usually when we think about voices inside our head, that's a bad thing. But when I was lost, these women's voices gave me guidance. And so I created this Black Women's Studies book list, and you'll see that's the other side of your bookmark, that is a collection of 1,400 books by, for, and about black women. And so this is where I situate my research in that. So in thinking about you know, what this has to do with University of New Mexico and African American Studies, it's imperative to celebrate 50. We're celebrating 50 years of black studies and to situate this institution and other institutions around the country to, to departmental status, to recognize the actual contributions of, of what this discipline does that is so vitally important to academic disciplines, to institutions, to communities, and to the nation, which is right now, frankly, a mess, and to international issues where, you know, if we do not deal with white supremacy, and we cannot say that out loud without people getting in their feelings, then, you know, black studies is one of those thought processes that helps us understand. It's not why people think that they're supreme but that these are systems that are put in place 
that have ramifications that we're now seeing around the world, New Zealand, right? So that we start to connect the dots and understand that this is a vital and vibrant intellectual discipline. But I was just talking to Peter, who's from Kenya. I, was, I spent a month in Tanzania doing research on African women scholars, right? Because we think Africa is a dark continent and all this stuff. There's a whole Makrere University in Uganda is one of the leading gender research producers. I mean, in 2006, they had 152 master's theses of African women producing, um, you know, information about gender. So looking globally what this has to do as an academic problem-solving discipline in relation to Native American studies, Asian American studies, Chicano Latino studies, and women's studies, that these studies developed as a way to advance our understanding as human beings, but also to, again, as Dr. Bethune said, we, we have to do something about this world. And so I would just, again, thank you all so much for your time. I look forward to the discussion. And, you know, as Professor Sanchez says, it'll get better, it'll get better, it'll get better. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed this hour of healing and wellness. We'd like to give a huge thank you to Dr. Stephanie Evans and Dr. Charles Becknell and UNM Africana Studies for allowing us to share this wonderful lecture. And thank you to the UNM Office of the Provost, Vision for Equity and Inclusion, Men of Color Initiative, and the Albuquerque Chapter of the Lynx. We would also like to thank KUNM for bringing the voices of young people to you, KUNM listeners. Our website is generationjustice.org, where you can check out all of our multimedia work and listen to our podcasts, which are also available on SoundCloud and iTunes. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the Kon Alma Health Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking donate. I'm Kateri Zuni. Join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Before we close our hour, we have some more music to share with you. Here is 20-something by SZA, followed by On the Ground by Rubble Bucket, and On and On by Erica Badu. Good night. Hope in my 20-something